0: hey it's Brandon Laws. welcome to transform your workplace today's episode is brought to you by Zenium HR learn more about Zenium's complete HR plus payroll solution at zeniumhr.com also if you're looking to develop your managers leaders we've got a great library a university of e-learning and you can go to zeniumhr.com forward slash courses and you can get all the courses for a very low price go check it out Well, I'm excited for today's episode. It's with Rahime Ramazani. And we are calling on business leaders to empower and develop marginalized groups. And we talk about what areas businesses are doing DEI work really well. We're talking about gaps. And we cover a lot of different areas about what we can do better, what actions we can take, and what kind of conversations we need to have to keep moving forward and making progress in this area. I think you're really going to enjoy what Rahime has to say. Had a lot of fun on this podcast. Enjoy. Make sure to connect with me. I'm on LinkedIn and Instagram. And make sure to connect with Rahime as well. Put links in the show notes for all the social channels. Enjoy today's episode and we'll talk to you next week. Ahime, it is such a pleasure to have you on Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Hi, Brandon. Thank you so much for having me.
0: We're going to talk about DEI. You're a DEI expert. We can never talk about DEI enough because we're all still learning. So I'm going to ask you this point blank, and this is a generality here. Scale of 1 to 10, how are most organizations doing when it comes to the DEI work? You could be harsh if you need to.
1: On a scale of 1 to 10, I would probably say like 3
0: So there's room for improvement.
1: It's hard because if an organization has done anything with DEI, which is like, that's an if. So if they've done nothing and they're still avoiding like, no, we don't want to for whatever reason, then that's a zero. But then if they've done anything, it's usually very much based in like the business case, right? Like why would doing this make me money? And that is incredibly problematic for many different reasons. And the way of the future is very much values-based, morals-based, employees and customers and clients as time goes on, especially as older or younger generations get older and take over more and more of the workplace. There have been studies that show that millennials and Gen Z and presumably the generations after us as well, I very much identify as a millennial. So I, I can't speak for Gen Z. I have so much admiration and love for Gen Z, but I'm not a Gen Z. But they've done studies that show that we all really, really, really as a generation statistically value working with companies and buying and spending our money with companies that reflect our values and millennials and Gen Z by and large value inclusivity and diversity and being good to people that you interact with. So that's not going to go away.
0: Some of the companies are, they are making an effort though, right? I mean, absolutely. If, if, yes. you, if you rated it a three, that means that some organizations are For making sure. a concerted effort, right?
1: With An average. There are many organizations that are doing amazing work and have been doing the work long before 2020. Uh, There are organizations that are incredibly responsive to their customers and clients and employees, saying, "Hey, this is wrong." Okay, we're going to take accountability. Executives and managers and directors and you know, IC level employees who are all very invested in social justice and diversity, equity, inclusion. So that's just to say, like, if I'm looking at the wide spectrum and then like trying to pick an average that probably be around where I'm at just because for me as a DEI practitioner and also being in networks with other DEI practitioners that we still are having to make the business case for why this is important. And the business case is basically like, why is this going to make us money if we do this?
0: Okay. So I've heard that, that argument before, because even a lot of people in the DEI space that I've talked to, they're like, there is a business case for it, and there's profit behind it. <laughs> it's good for the business in general. What's your case that you'd make for why it's it's good? If it's not, if it's not the the money reason, like it's good for business, we can grow as a business and we can meet our goals because diversity is good for business. Mm. What's the other reason?
1: So my reason as Rahime Ramazani honestly doesn't matter <laughs> because I'm not running the business. I want
0: to hear. I- no, no,
1: no. Like, like. So in the work that I do when I work with clients, when any DEI practitioner works with a client, um, I'm sure for you in your own work as well, you have to understand like what does the client care about and then match whatever reasoning you have to what they actually care about. I'm a really big believer in as much as I would love an ideal world and an ideal situation, and people being intrinsically motivated to just generally be good people and being held accountable when we do make mistakes and all of those things. I would love for that to happen, but I know that that is very unlikely and. I personally don't like hitting my head against a wall, being like, it should be this way, it should be this way, it should be this way, when it's not that way. Mm -hmm. I would rather just save myself a headache (laughs) of hitting my head against the wall (laughs) and be like, okay. Especially when you're working with a client, the idea is not to like, and DI work, social justice work shouldn't be about shame. It shouldn't be about guilting people. It shouldn't be like, you should be better than this. Like, no, that's not the point. The point is, okay, where are you at? You want to improve what matters to you. And I can push you in the direction of being like being a good person, caring about Mm -hmm. inclusivity, caring about the livelihood and well being of human beings, whether they are your clients and customers and employees or yourself, should just generally matter to people. Mm -hmm. But if it doesn't, um, and even if you don't know that explicitly, that it doesn't matter to you, but in your actions and words, and like where a company is putting its money where the company is investing its time and hiring certain people and stuff. like You can see implicitly what it cares about, right? So even if you tell me, yes, we care about DEI, and especially if you are from a marginalized identity group, folks like us are looking at companies when they say they care about DEI, and we're looking at, okay, well, how do you actually act? How do you actually treat people? How do you treat both your employees internally, especially like if I want to work for your company and apply for a job? Or if I want to buy your product, buy your service, whatever. How do you actually act? So all of us are watching your behavior and not... No,
0: especially now. I mean, like there's social media and all these other places. My
1: love for Gen Z knows no bounds. Seriously, (sighs) I love them so much. Like there was an article that I shared on LinkedIn like a week ago or something where Gen Z is using social media (laughs) to like track their potential manager so before they apply for a job they will go and look up their manager on social media to see wow. like what kind of person they are and if they're not a good person by their estimation they literally won't apply for the job it's like yeah, oh my yeah, god this expect- is yeah. so instead of companies it's- looking at people who want to work for them and being like oh you had a night out with your friends like how unprofessional It's like it's a night out with their friends like what does that matter
0: it's a night like, out with your friends. like get over
1: yourself <laughs> or yeah yeah like let people live anyway. So it's just, it's how the turns have tabled.
0: You know, it's interesting, like just about how you're you're talking about the reasoning behind it. I've always felt in my heart that you put people first and you take care of them, not only inside your company, but you take care of your customers, mm. you treat mm. them right, uh, you treat your community good. Profit comes as a byproduct of that. And if you don't take care of your people, you're going to lose them, you're going to lose clients, you're going to have a bad reputation in the community, and it all falls apart. So... To your point, being a good person does matter in this.
1: It does, for sure. It's a matter of, like again, taking people's motivation and companies' motivation for what it actually is instead of what I think it should be or what you, Brandon, think it should be. So if in effect, they are like a lot of companies right now, we're filming this in July 2022, there are a lot of companies that have been laying off huge parts of their employee base. A lot of them... Are from historically marginalized identity groups, a lot of DEI people who have been hired in the last two, three years.
0: Like DEI specialists inside of an organization, they're getting laid off? Like
1: internally, yeah. So there's DEI folks who work externally to companies like as consultants or public speakers or subject matter experts, contractors, they're hired in for whatever expertise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then there's folks that are hired internally into a company and they are like that DEI person, right? There's chief diversity officers, of course, but then there are folks lower on the hierarchy doing all different kinds of things. Great. So, Also, we're seeing along with these layoffs, a lot of DEI folks that were hired internally in companies are getting axed. So the idea being is that, okay, you as a company have like a very fancy, you hired a very nice PR person to write your diversity statement for you. Uh, Okay, cool. That's not nothing. But in effect, when it actually comes down to making decisions, when it actually comes to where you're putting your money as a company, who are you firing? Who are you laying off? Who are you promoting? Who are you giving professional development to? Who are you giving accommodations for? Who are you making excuses for? Oh, this isn't a reasonable accommodation, so therefore I won't like... For instance, folks with disabilities are one of the largest, predominantly groups that struggle with getting employment, not because they are inherently unskilled, but because companies don't want to give them the basic accommodations that would allow them, who are very skilled employees... And add value and inherently are valuable human beings to society. And just from their worth as existing, they are firing those people first. And again, DEI folks as well. Those are the first people to go. So it's like, okay, so you're saying that you care about DEI, but any little pressure, any little stress and boof, gone. So like, okay, so what do we really care about here?
0: When it comes to DEI practices that those progressive companies are actually, like they're implementing DEI practices, they're hiring DEI people, what are they covering when it comes to DEIs? Are there areas that are often overlooked? You're the expert. So I'm curious if there's things that are being overlooked when it comes to DEI. I know it's a big subject. So what's not being covered?
1: So much of DEI work is contextual, which again, like is my answer from before of on average how our companies doing it really depends on how much work that they've done, what needs to be done. I personally am digging into more of like neuroscience, emotional intelligence, trauma-informed training and education practices, because there are folks who I intentionally admit that I am using a binary way of thinking right now, but if you will allow me there are folks who have experienced marginalization and the isms of the world for their own identities and then there are folks who have areas of privilege that don't make them bad people because they have privilege having privilege does not mean you're a bad person but it is a reality that your life has been made easier from having privilege it doesn't mean that your life has been easy that is not the same thing but your life has not been made more difficult because you have certain areas of privilege. Most of us have some areas of privilege and some areas of disadvantage. And it really like, that's why identity work is incredibly, incredibly important. Myself very much as an example. I am lighter skinned. I intentionally try not to use, I'm training myself out of using the word fair skin because I don't want to imply a positive from having like lighter skin. I have hazel eyes, which according to Western beauty standards is like a nice thing to have compared to brown eyes. You know, I speak with an American accent, a Californian accent. I speak English, na- like English is my native language. All of these advantages and privileges that I have that I didn't choose to have the eye color that I have, the skin color that I have, the accent that I have, and all of that. However, I do need to take responsibility for how folks might favor me and give me opportunities because of how I look or how I am. And disadvantage other folks who don't have those things also because not from their choice or not anything that is against them. However, like my areas of disadvantage, like you can clearly see like I'm a Muslim woman who wears the headscarf that most some Muslim women wear called hijab. So that means that I am very clearly identifiable as like an other anywhere I go in public. People can see me from across the street, from across a mall, from across like large distances and see like, oh, look, there's that person who looks different from everyone else around us. If someone has ill intentions, like they can come up to me from a very far distance and harass me or bother me or something like that. I am a woman in a patriarchal society. I have ADHD and being, you know, neurodiverse, something especially that I just learned recently, which that's its own thing of like, not even knowing what neurodiversity was for so long, not even knowing what ADHD was for so long. So just thinking there was something inherently wrong with me for literally 30 years, not everyone, but a lot of people around me treating me like, oh, you just need to get your act together or you're so or lazy or whatever. That's also areas of disadvantage. So just as an example, myself, my intention is not to talk about myself just to like, randomly talk about myself, but using myself as an ex- Okay. Using myself as an example.
0: I actually like it. Like, I like the vulnerability and it's a good example. Yeah. Cause most people like want to project outward. I actually like that you're talking about yourself.
1: I really truly believe, especially as DI practitioners, that we owe it to the people that we're talking to, to be incredibly transparent about our identities, because that informs the lenses through which we are doing this work. And no matter how much we may learn about another group that we don't belong to, and we should learn about everyone, DEI practitioners and not, should all learn and go out of our way about learning about different cultures and identity groups and so on. So we can be more inclusive and sensitive to their needs and they don't have to educate us all the time. Like we've gone out of our way to educate ourselves. However, we are never, ever, 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 ever going to be able to speak on and for cultures or identity groups that we don't belong to, right? So I use myself as an example because I can talk about myself and my different identities. And I like to show, again, the point being I have areas of privilege and I have areas of disadvantage. And most people have areas of privilege and areas of disadvantage. And without, you need to go through that identity work to understand that. Uh, Last example, I needed to get a mattress a couple months ago. So I went to a store and this very kind man, uh, and he was a white man. And we got off talking and stuff like that. And, you know, he asked me, like, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I work in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, you know, you never really know how people, anyone is going to react to that, talking about DEI, all of the things. So I just shared that. And he, like, lit up and, oh, that's so interesting and stuff like that. And the first thing he jumped to, he's tall. He's, like, probably in, like, his, you know, 60s or so. I personally believe like as an older man, and especially who's tall, who's white, that is a lot of privilege, right? There are, I'm sure many identity groups that obviously he didn't necessarily uh, share that could be invisible that I didn't know. However, being a tall white man who like is a little bit on the older side, that is a lot of privilege. But the first thing he jumps to is like, oh, people assume that I'm American and he has like an accent that would very I I thought he was American and he's Canadian and he was so upset that people just assume that he's American when he's Canadian and how like people make assumptions how horrible that was and I'm like and so I just let it go because like I'm just trying to exist I'm just trying to buy a mattress so I can go home and he was very nice and it's just like why is it that you have all of this privilege and the very first thing that comes to mind is like people assume that you're American when you're Canadian like like I'm sure that that bothers you and that is legitimate and that's fine but when you look at all the isms of the world all the racism, Islamophobia, like classism, yeah. like stuff going on with climate change and how people are affected based off of their identities. Like- yeah,
0: it's it's interesting because, you know, as DEI work started popping up um, a lot over the last few years, there's just so much to unpack. I think many people are probably so uncomfortable at first because they're like, wow, there's a lot to learn. It can be. But then as you open up your mind and you start reflecting inward and then you start learning about other other people, other identities the other isms, there's so much more to DEI than I ever thought. I've had several conversations recently about neurodiversity invisible disabilities, which I didn't even know is a, a, disabilities obviously in general. And I think there's so much of that. It's not even being included into DEI. The other thing I find interesting, which is what I wanted to ask you about, so I'm going to probably butcher the saying, but you know, like at the dinner table, we're not really supposed to talk about money, politics, religion, right? It's like taboo subject or whatever. But religion is a background of somebody. It's a belief system. And I understand that's uncomfortable to talk about. Doesn't that belong into DEI though? Absolutely. Yes. That's
1: part of what I want to do with my business, with my work is be like, hey, we don't talk about religion enough. However, it is perfectly legitimate and understandable that there are many different reasons, like honestly on different sides of the spectrum, as to why folks are very uncomfortable talking about religion. For instance, there are many folks from all different religions, I'm not picking on anyone, including Muslims, including Islam, very much my own group. There are folks who grew up in different religious households that were incredibly traumatized by how they were treated by their families, by their communities, and have left religion, again, any religion, And have a lot of trauma around that. And, you know, anytime religion is brought up, they have just very negative, traumatic experiences and reactions, right? That is a completely legitimate experience. And we need to, like, just not pretend that that's not a thing. Okay. So we need to hold that and respect that. Cool. Then there are also folks, the only time they talk about their own religion is when they're trying to convert people. And we've all had that experience of, like, Someone, Mm, hopefully not everyone has had this experience. The understanding is that like the only conversations they've ever had about their own religion, about other people's religions, hearing about religion on, you know, in media, in person, whatever, is like someone is trying to convert someone. And if that's not your thing, like it's fine to have those conversations, like in separate settings, if people consent to that kind of conversation, debating religion and criticizing religion are all completely legitimate things. However, When we are talking about DEI, for me, what I'm advocating for is like an interfaith understanding and dialogue so that we can understand another identity group and something that is a huge part of people's upbringing, the lens through which they see the world, their value system, and the vast majority of religions share the majority of their values. Honestly, a huge part of why I do DEI work is because Islam, the religion that I follow, I personally believe is incredibly social justice oriented. I believe that I am being a practicing Muslim by doing this work and making the world more inclusive and equitable and social justice oriented. And honestly, I believe that most religions would agree with that in those values, those inherent values, right? Like we want to see the world a better place. We want to take care of each other because we are siblings in humanity And so on. So, the idea being like making the distinction, and it's definitely a transition that I had to make in my own mind. So, holding space for other people to make that transition themselves of like, okay, what is the difference between talking about religion to like one up each other or prove each other wrong or like try and convert people to I am just describing what we believe. I am not asking you to agree with me. I'm not asking you to do the same thing. I'm just describing what we do. And now you understand what other religions do. And you can be understanding, right? Like if I talk about fasting during the month of Ramadan. During the month of Ramadan, Muslims fast from sunrise to sunset. Uh no food, no water from sunrise to sunset, and then we eat during the nighttime. Okay, cool. So, I can describe a lot of Muslims will talk about what Ramadan is, the spiritual meaning behind it, the physical like health benefits, all the things, like the communal aspect and like the time of rejuvenation and going to people's houses and breaking fast together and waking up for extra prayers and just like all the things, right? None of that is saying like, hey, non-Muslims, you should do this too. No, like you're not Muslim. You don't need to do that. Like that's not at all a part of the conversation. It's literally just describing what we do. If you want to in like an interfaith allyship sort of way, want to come to a mosque to participate in breaking the fast at the end of the night, you will have an amazing time. We have amazing food. You are welcome, but you don't have to.
0: Right. You know what I always find interesting about just the DEI conversation, even in what you just described too, is I've, I've always felt like DEI is, is meant to try to connect us more, have a basic understanding versus I think a lot of people think it's like indoctrination or something or conver- like conversion or whatever, whatever you're describing. I really believe like we're just trying to Connect each other better, like you're saying, like values alignment, because we value a lot of the same things. But I don't understand your religion. You might not understand mine. You might not understand our friend Joe over here, who's uh, in our same organization. I think, I think, just having a basic understanding is really all we're trying to to get.
1: And I would say so. My background is in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and intercultural communication. So what I hear you describing for me is more on the intercultural communication side of like. There's an in-group and the people in this in-group and like what I would use in-group as like a swap out for culture because people, when they hear culture, they think of like ethnicity, nationality or something like that. Whereas for me, I use like what I learned about intercultural communication is like an in-group where those of us in the in-group have A way of being, a way of behaving, a way of not behaving, of speaking to each other, showing respect, verbal communication, nonverbal communication, all the things. If someone were to come in who's an outsider and they don't know all of these things, they don't have to say anything. They don't have to like explicitly identify themselves. We know that they don't belong and they feel a sense of like lacking belonging. And hopefully, ideally, like... It's not a like we hate on each other sort of thing. Sometimes that does, you know, very much happen. Historically, that does happen like in groups and out groups like hate on each other. But ideally, it's just like, oh, okay. there's a culture. There's some people in the culture, some people out of the culture. Okay, that's cool. And then getting to know each other. Right. So, for instance, like an intercultural example would be like a Chinese person goes to a German person's house for dinner. What sort of gift should they bring the host or hostess or both? Like, great. That's a perfectly valid conversation to have. And is more kind of in line with what you're talking about, like just getting to know each other's cultures. And that is, again, completely valid. However, bringing in DEI, DEI is very much about like power and privilege and that there is a hierarchy in society that advantages to some and disadvantages others. So your comment also earlier about like, it doesn't have to be uncomfortable. Mm, I'm not sure if I would agree with that. Like if you are doing DI work and you're not uncomfortable... Mm. I don't know if you would be doing it right.
0: Mm, I see what you're saying.
1: And so the idea being is just like having a higher tolerance for discomfort and not letting your like fight, flight, freeze or fawn mode like activate and be like, oh my gosh, I have to, you know, yell at someone
0: or run away or whatever. I'm definitely uncomfortable. I think it's when it's something brand new, you're uncomfortable and you're like just not ready to talk yet because I'm like I'm ignorant and I have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm just going to listen. I'm going to learn. But as you start to learn and then you start having more conversation, it becomes a little easier.
1: Yeah, your tolerance for discomfort just gets better. Yeah. Looking at going back, so our our Chinese person goes to a German person's house, what gift should they bring to the host? Alternatively, so looking at like power, privilege, areas of disadvantage and advantage, an example similarly would be if we have a white non-Muslim American woman go to Saudi Arabia, and you don't tell her anything about gender norms and the differences in dress code or cultural norms or anything, you are actively putting her in harm's way. And alternatively, if you have a Saudi man who wears traditional Saudi clothing the way many Arabs do uh, in their home countries, and he comes to the United States, you are actively putting him in harm's way. There have been articles that I have seen where that exact thing has happened. Where Arab, in this case a man, wore traditional Arab clothing in a gas station in some part of the U.S. And he like got attacked because they thought he was a terrorist or something like that. And he's just like hanging out. He's just doing, he's just living. And this is his like traditional clothing. They wear that in their country. And so the government, I do believe it was Saudi at the time, puts an advisory saying like, hey, don't wear your traditional clothing in the United States because you might not be safe. So the idea being like, yes, get to know each other's culture, but there's definitely power and privilege and a lack of safety for a lot of identity groups. And we can't pretend that that's not a thing. And going back to the question of religion, this is very uncomfortable for a lot of folks. So I just asked anyone listening to just take a deep breath. And listen to what I'm saying without jumping to conclusions. The idea being if we're going to talk about religion, we have to talk about that there is a hierarchy of religion and preference. My context is in the United States the U.S. Constitution affords freedom of religion. And we technically live in a country that is not tied to any one religion formally. However, we all know that Christianity is very much highly preferred and given, you know, like so many Congress folks are talking about Christianity and the Bible and using that as a part of why they vote a certain way. It's like, what happened to the separation of church and state, right? Why are you quoting a religious text? The idea being that there is an area of advantage religiously and areas of disadvantage religiously. So a Hindu, a Jew, a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Jain, a Baha'i, so on, talking about their religion, say, in the workplace and inclusion is very different from a Christian talking about religion. However, I do also want to complicate it when you bring in race, right? Like a black Christian person, uh, say like a black Christian woman, right? So she's a woman, she's black, but then she's Christian, Right. So like, again, areas of advantage, disadvantage, then you can put in like disability, you can put in neurodiversity, you can put socioeconomic status and all the different things like there's so many different identities. It's all very complicated. Uh, But just again, the idea being that I would caution anyone doing DEI and anyone listening to not fall into the unknowing like you don't know that you're doing it like. Human beings don't want to be uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable to be uncomfortable. We don't want it. Our brains are wired to flee it in any way that we can. And that is natural. So knowing that that our brain wants to do that and also holding space for, okay, I'm not unsafe because I'm uncomfortable and I can continue to learn and I'm invested in making the world a more inclusive, equitable place. And that is more important than my comfort or my discomfort. And knowing that we have to be able to, talk about privilege we have to talk about how different identity groups have been disadvantaged by the groups that we belong to
0: so we got a lot of hr professionals leaders listening to this podcast and like you even just said it a minute ago you're like this is all very confusing very hard work and i don't want people to be paralyzed by starting and doing something but what can employers do right now to even take a step in the right direction do some of the work that you're describing the work that you do
1: you need to listen to your people your people are in your organization. They know your context. They know you. Hopefully you know them, but maybe not. Uh, they will tell you what you need to do. Especially the most marginalized folks. The most marginalized identity folks in your organization will know what to do. I don't know your organization. I have no idea who's listening. I don't know you. You don't know me. I couldn't possibly give you like the best course of action. I could give you a cookie cutter answer, but that might not be the best thing. Your people will know. And it's really hard because there are times and there's a lot of distrust of leadership and HR where they have sent out surveys, annual climate, annual culture surveys, tell us how we're doing. And then your people tell you Mm -hmm. and then you don't do anything. (laughs) (laughs) Or like you do the bare minimum or you do very performative (laughs) things. What's
0: the point? Yeah.
1: Like if you're not in that position, one, it's not great because that means you haven't even been attempting to check in with your people. But okay, it is what it is. Great. Take accountability for that. Like, say that out loud that you recognize that, hey, we should have been checking in with you this whole time. And we take a responsibility. We sincerely apologize. We are committed to doing better. Never, never dodge accountability. If you try and dodge accountability, you will never, ever, ever build trust. Ever. Right. And you won't die. Like, apologize. Being an adult, being a human being means that you have to apologize. We're all going to make mistakes. I'm going to make mistakes. I was talking to Brandon earlier before we started the recording. I talk about the importance of spelling people's names and pronouncing people's names correctly all the time, all the time. And yesterday, two days ago, I misspelled someone's name in an email and he very kindly, very respectfully pointed out like, Hey, and I had talked to this person the same day about the importance of getting names, right. And I misspelled his name. So now I haven't responded yet. I need to go respond to that email and I will apologize very sincerely. Thank him for pointing that out. Cause it's very, very uncomfortable pointing out like, especially with names, like that people got things wrong. Thank you so much for helping me be better. I promise. And I am committed to trying to be better and I will hold myself accountable and be better and move on. Right. So, okay. So if you are in leadership, you're in HR and you haven't checked in with your people, holding yourself accountable and telling your people, Hey, we realized we should have been asking you what you want and what you need. And we didn't do that. And we are committed to doing that. We apologize. Okay, great. And move on. And then People are going to be watching you to see, like, are you just words? Are you just going to say that and then not do anything? Or are you going to do something? And they will hopefully accept your apology if they see that you are actually doing something. So then you do whatever surveys or whatever, like, you know, depending on the size of your organization and how much trust you have that they're going to tell you honestly and all of the things. Okay. And then you get the feedback and then you need to act on that feedback. If you are an organization that has been checking in with your people and you've been ignoring them, because you don't, for whatever reason, want to act on that feedback, you have an uphill battle because you have lost trust. 100% you've lost trust. So one, you need to build that trust again in the same similar way. Acknowledge, hey, we messed up. We didn't do this. This is what we did very clearly saying that you understand what you did wrong. We are committed to doing things in the future, but don't take our word for it. We're going to prove it to you. We're going to show you. Awesome. And then go do it. Keep in mind also that if you already have done surveys, and when I've worked in DI consulting firms in the past that have done these surveys, we've had um, employees at organizations say, like, hey, they've been doing these annual, biannual surveys for a really long time, and they never do anything with this feedback. So why bother? Filling them out. So if you have that issue where you're collecting surveys for a while and not acting on the feedback, or even if you feel like you've been doing something with the feedback, but your employees don't feel like you've been doing it, like their opinion matters. Like you can't, no, 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 we actually did. No, no, no. If they don't believe you or if they haven't seen what they want to see, then you have to take their opinion as what is acknowledging that they might not want to fill out a new survey because they are burnt out, they don't trust you, they don't feel like it's worth the effort. I highly recommend if you're in that situation, hire a really good DEI practitioner or DEI firm who can help you with this and build rebuild trust. DEI practitioners who can work with you and get to know your people, you know, that they can be a trusted ally between your folks, and you if you don't have that trust. But yeah, good luck. I wish you the best.
0: This has been a really great discussion. I appreciate you coming on. Where can people learn more about you? Your work, anything like that? You're on Instagram. I know that.
1: Yes. Okay, so, LinkedIn and TikTok are my two prime accounts. Those are where I'm most active. And then, like, Instagram and YouTube, I kind of just cross post things uh, because I know there are a lot of folks who are active on Instagram. And then, clearly, like, YouTube is like the holy grail of, <laughs> of all social media. Like, I love YouTube too. So, you can find me on any of those things. I also have a website, Rahime And sorry, yes, you are going to have to spell my name correctly to find it. Uh, but yeah, check it out. I have have information about my services, you can find my social media there. And I do try to be responsive to messages because I really do respect the time that everyone has spent like reaching out and I want to build community. So yeah, reach out to me if you have any questions.
0: Rahime, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Brandon. The views, thoughts and opinions expressed are the guest's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of Zenium HR or the host, Brandon Laws. The material and information presented on Transform Your Workplace is for general information and educational purposes only. Zenium HR or the host, Brandon Laws, does not necessarily endorse any guest, their business, or any organization they represent. Discretion is advised. Please work with a trusted advisor to find a custom approach that fits your organization's needs.